Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Please turn to uh, 2 Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's so nice, I'm going to read it twice. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Welcome, Brother Ray. Good morning. There we go. Third time later. Great to see everyone this morning. What a wonderful and beautiful and powerful service it's already been for all of us. Hopefully you've enjoyed what the Lord's doing. And let's get right into the study today. Um, Pastor Luke began a new series in our church that's going to go for about nine weeks on values, values of Follow Baptist Church. And he started that series with looking at we want to be a church, we want to be defined by being spirit-led people, that every choice that we make, we're led, we're guided by God's spirit. Thankfully, the Lord didn't just rise from the dead, go to heaven and say, see you later. He is with us every day, empowering us, giving us the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to be with us, to help us, to direct us. What a blessing that is. Well, I've been given the task of looking at the Bible, another very, very important, uh, if not the most, everything we've said today, everything about the Father's love, everything about God loving you, everything about the person, the man that uh, God wants us to be, the women that God wants us to be, where do these truths come from that we discuss? Well, the reference point we have is the Bible. So the question that I want to pose or bring to you today is, do you believe it? If you're a Christian, I hope you do believe it. But the question is, therefore, why? Why should you believe the Bible? Um, on our value statement, which you can find on the web when you look, at, look up what we believe, it says there, we are a community that believes that the Bible is ultimate truth. God's heart revealed. That's what we say we believe. I guess the question for us as the body of believers, as the church, is what do you say? Uh, it's Vody Bockham says in one of his lectures, he says, the easiest way to perhaps stump any Christian is simply to ask them three questions. The first question is, what do you believe about, and he says any topic, sexuality? What do you believe about eternity? The big questions, if you like. What do you believe about life, the purpose of man? And he said most Christians will then come and respond and answer by saying, I believe in, and give an answer. Why do you believe that? And they'll say, because the Bible says so. And then he says, this is the question that leads to the stumping of just about every Christian. And, and it is this, why do you believe in the Bible? And it's at that point that many Christians will go, um, well, because I've been brought up to believe. Uh, well, because it's God's word. But how do you know that it's God's word? So we want to look at that. We want to unpack that and discuss that um, and do it in a prompt manner today. Amen. 
Um, pray for me. Uh, in fact, it's a good time to pray. Lord, help me. Amen. <laughs> Similar to Peter's sermon when he was sinking. Just short brief, but it can be powerful. Short prayers. Listen to this truth that's on the uh, Believe uh, website. It's for, for youth. And it, it's discussing the, the tenets of the faith, about being a Christian, about uh, the coming of the Lord in the Bible. One of the philosophers there or, or, or lecturers, he says this, if you reject the testimony of the Bible, it's not going to be very long before you lose your enthusiasm, you lose your enthusiasm about your Christian beliefs. The heart cannot exalt what the mind rejects. I'll say that again, because this may be where some of you are at today. Dragged to church by the wife, dragged to church by the kids, dragged to church because you don't want to keep the family together. But if you are brutally honest this morning, this is perhaps the wrestling and the issues that are going on inside of you. I'll say it again. If you reject the testimony of the Bible, it is not going to be very long before you lose your enthusiasm about your Christian beliefs. The heart cannot exalt what the mind rejects. It is my prayer today that I stir your enthusiasm about this book, God's Word and Faith. I pray that you leave, that I leave today as I have been encouraged as I've studied and prepared the Word of the Lord that something powerful and dynamic takes place inside your heart if you're in that place of feeling a bit wishy-washy, a bit, a bit stale, as it were, in your faith, a bit uninspired. I pray that we all feel enthused today. Amen? Not just by the smell of the sausage rolls, but also by the Bible. Two points I want to make with 14 points in. 14 points in a half an hour means I've got two minutes to make every point. I've done the maths. A bit like TJ. So the two major points I want to make today is why don't people trust the Bible? And then I want to end with 10 points, or maybe five. So here we go for time of why people do trust the Bible. Let's move quickly. The first reason that I want to give, and there are many, but I just want to give four of why people don't trust the Bible, is number one, Satan's influence. Right back in the beginning, in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent, uh, Satan in disguise, if you like, he speaks and he says to Eve, has God really said? So right from the beginning of the scriptures, we've got the questioning of the definitive word of God. And so the point I'm making is this. I believe when people don't trust the Bible, when people don't love the word of God, even as believers, I think there's something more than human taking place. I believe that there's a satanic influence, if you like, of why people take displeasure or ignore the word of God. That's the first point. Satan's influence. The second reason people don't trust the Bible is cultural or philosophical assumptions. 
This is popular today. Dan Brown's book, The The Da Vinci Code, simply saying that the Bible is a bunch of stories written too long after the event and the life of Jesus. And what about the Gospel of Thomas? And throws out all of these uh, just, just, just fluff, if you like, to get people that are thinking uh, not biblical thoughts, not true thoughts, but just simply stories that are made up, uh, the, the, these fictitious characters, and people start believing that and say, yeah, well, maybe, maybe that is true. People deny the, the truth or the fact that there is, that they'll say things like, there is no absolute truth anymore, that all thought is culturally bound. This is popular today. Another reason, number three, that people don't believe the Bible is because of the difficult passages in the Bible. How many have read them? How many have come across them? And they kind of, let's be honest, they take you back, they take your breath away, and you think, ah, a God of love? Deuteronomy 5, when the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to send all of the lepers outside of the camp. Do you ever look at that and go, well, what if I was one of them? Where's the love of God in that being sent outside of the the camp, pushed out, cut off from the other people of God? And so what we do is we take our personal assumptions, our personal uh, views, if you like, and then we think they're, well, we promote them somewhat higher than what God's actually doing. And so we can look at certain parts and go, I don't like that. Number four, reason why people don't trust the Bible is personal experiences. I remember many years ago, just get my water, I uh, attended a Christian rally at a university where we were handing out Bibles and lifting up the name of Jesus and another group of Christians heard about it and they decided it would be a good time to march against homosexuality. So they came into the university grounds with placards saying homosexuals are going to hell and you are going to burn and regardless of what you think about that, when they brought those placards and spoke those words, they were all smiling and they are happy about it. Ha-ha! Homosexuals are going to burn in hell! Hey! It's like it was an ad for a kebab or Kentucky Fried Chicken. Have you ever seen that? It kind of... You look at people present the Bible, the Scriptures, that way, and you think... I don't know if I could trust that. Or maybe you were brought up in a home. Maybe you had that relative, that uncle, that person who would use the scripture to manipulate family members, to to use the Bible as a hammer to somehow smash bad behavior or, or, or to, to you know, manipulate the behavior of family members. And you'd look at that and you'd go, is that the Bible? I don't want any part of that. There's many more reasons, but there are four reasons why I think people don't trust the Bible. How many can relate to something there? Well, let me give you some reasons of why we can trust the Bible. Let me give you some reasons why there's some rational evidence and convincing proofs of why we believe the Bible is God's word. And there are many compelling reasons to suggest and to show us why the Bible is not like any other book. The first reason I want to give is the direct claims of the Bible. The Bible is authoritative 
in all the matters it addresses, including its own claims about itself. The Bible, in fact, claims to be the Word of God. Now, this is not a title that man is trying to put onto the Bible. This is the Bible speaking of itself, similar to an accused person, if you like, having the right to defend themselves when when in a court of law, before a judge, before a magistrate, giving their own defence, the Bible wonderfully, again and again, gives its own defence. Verse 16 of our text, the Bible there says, All Scripture is God-breathed. This is a word that is not to, we call it inspiration, but it's actually, um, it's God exhaling, it's God breathing out. I'll try to speak the Greek word. Uh, It's theo Neutos, Theonutos. Theos, the word, Greek word for God, and Neutos means breath or spirit. And the word of God, it says here, speaking of itself, it is God breathed. It is literally God breathing out the scriptures and it is recorded secondarily by human authors. This, this verse and no other verse speaks about um, God inspiring the authors, but simply that the authors were moved by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, church, it doesn't say that the author was inspired, but the text was inspired. In other words, man is not the author, but God is the ultimate author of Scripture. The Bible is the result or the product of divine breath. Of, it, is, it is God's divine word, the product of divine intervention and a divine operation. Over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, we read the statement such as, Thus says the Lord. We read statements such as, The Lord said, or the word of the Lord came to me saying. Again and again, we read these statements that are speaking, that they are direct claims of Scripture. We come to the New Testament. There are many more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you. So what we're seeing here is that the authors were very aware that the message that they speak, they were speaking or communicating, didn't originate with themselves, but it was a message that came from heaven through them to us. 1 Corinthians 11.23 For I receive from the Lord that which I now also pass on to you. So both the Old and the New Testament, we have the direct claims that the Bible is God's word. The second truth I want to give you today is the perfect unity of the Bible. The more you read the Bible, the more you see it is incredible uh, in terms of its unity in the midst of incredible diversity. 66 books written over a time period of 15 to 1600 years, over 40 different authors from three different continents, all writing in three different languages. Now consider the diversity of the authors. Two were kings, three were priests, one was a physician, two were fishermen, one was a shepherd, one was a former Pharisee, two were statesmen, one was a tax collector, one was a military general, one was a scribe, one was a tax uh, cupbearer, and one was a goat herder. 
Incredible diversity. Consider the diversity of the, uh, the language uh, or the literacy, rather, uh, genre uh, in which they spoke. They wrote in narrative. They wrote in poetry. They wrote in proverbs. They wrote in prophecy. They wrote in allegory. They wrote in song. They wrote legal writings. This is the makeup of the scripture. Consider where they were when they wrote the Bible. Some were in the, uh, the, the Sinai Desert. Some were in a palace in Jerusalem, a cave in Judea. The palace of Sushon sounds like a cat. Some were by the river of Babylon. Get that song out of your head. The land of Egypt, Greece, Macedonia, Rome, the barren island known as Patmos. This is the place where all of the scripture was written. Also consider the diversity of its many parts. There are almost three. 3,000 characters in the story of the Bible spanning 1,189 chapters, compromising or comprising rather of 31,000 verses requiring uh, over 700,000 words containing 3.5 million letters. Yet, Despite this complex diversity, the Bible speaks of one plan of salvation. It speaks of one God. It speaks of one story of human history. It speaks of one plan of mankind. It speaks of one solution for mankind. It speaks of one standard for the family. It speaks of one standard for morality for the entire world. It speaks of one chief objective of its message. It never contradicts itself. How can you, uh, uh, how can you understand? understand or account for this incredible unity in the midst of incredible diversity, the only explanation is that there is one author who stands behind the entire book and he's breathed it out and that author is God himself. Hallelujah. One person, one person has said, one person has said that the probability of all of that being complete without one single contradiction is like a bomb going off in a print shop. And as the pages of printed matter and paper fly through the air, as it lands like confetti, it simply lands together on a pile. And as that pile of paper forms, it perfectly forms the Oxford English Dictionary in alphabetical order, listed from A to Z, every word spoken by mankind. What's the probability of that? Glad someone's getting excited this morning. <laughs> Let's go into number three. Are you more excited about the time or the fact that I'm moving quickly? <laughs> number three, the reliable transmission of the Bible. For compared to any other book of antiquity, the Bible has passed with extraordinary precision. Beginning, give you some history with that. Beginning with the Old Testament, until recent times, the oldest known Hebrew manuscript of any length didn't date earlier than the first part of the 10th century after Christ. So there is a gap, therefore, of thirteen to fourteen hundred years from the writings of the of the of the last book of the Old Testament to the oldest copy that we have, but there was an incredible discovery, wasn't there, 
1947, 1948, there was a little shepherd boy in the northwest section of the Dead Sea. He was simply walking with his sheep, throwing rocks, saw a cave, threw a rock in the cave. He heard a thud. He went to investigate what was inside that cave and he discovered one of the greatest archaeological studies or findings, treasures that has ever been found in modern history. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Over the following months, they found a further 11 caves and they found contained a treasure that had been there for over a thousand years. Precious copies of the original text. They found two copies of the book of Isaiah, entire copies of the Psalms, entire copies of the books of Leviticus, thousands of fragments of the Old Testament. When Hebrew scholars gathered together all of the pieces of this manuscript, as they gathered it together, they pushed back the the days, if you like, of the finding of of original copies of these biblical transcripts, not a thousand or fourteen hundred years post the church, but it brought it back right to the time of the first century church. This is amazing. So rather than finding this material long after it had been written, it brought it right up to the tail end of the church. They found manuscripts of the New Testament. We have now nearly 6,000 early Greek manuscripts. We have over 10,000 copies in Latin Vulgate not to mention the Syriac and other languages. And when you compare the amount, the copious amounts of literature, of Bible literature that we have with other ancient books, there is no comparison. Many of you have heard the story. Take, for example, Homer who lived about 800 years BC. There's a time gap between what he wrote and the oldest copy of 400 years. Plato, 380 BC, They found seven copies or parts thereof 1,300 years later after his death. They found copies. None of of those copies or fragments are, are not considered to be historical evidence or true. Caesar, 950 years after his life, copies, 10 copies of his writings were located. The New Testament. 50 years, thousands of copies located. Entire copies of the New Testament found over 14,000 components of the Scripture compared to 50 copies, 10 copies. And these copies aren't found hundreds of years later, but within the same century. This is amazing, church. What about the historical accuracy of the Bible? Historical accuracy can be seen particularly in one of the writers, the physician or the doctor by the name of Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The amazing component that many scholars will say about Luke's writing, particularly as it relates to the book of Acts. He says, F.F. Bruce, he writes these words in his commentary. He says, there's an interesting evidence for the reliability of the book of Acts. Luke focuses upon the titles of government officials in Acts and shows us that he gets these titles beyond their common names. He gets it right time after time. For example, and I could read you the scriptures, but we don't have the time. 
He speaks of the proconsul. He speaks of a governor, a military commander. He speaks of magistrates. And he gives these official titles rather than those popular titles. And this is the conclusion. All of these evidences of accuracy are not accidental. A man who, who, whose accuracy can be demonstrated in matters where we are able to test it is also likely uh, to be accurate even when there is no testing him, when, when, when the means for testing him are also not available. Amen. There's been over 23,000 archaeological digs and none of them have disproved the Bible but only confirmed its accuracy. For a long time, they said the pool of Bethesda never existed. They recently discovered a pool in Bethesda buried under sand. Many years when the Torah, the first books of the Bible, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, they said those books, uh, people back then, it was the fact that Moses could have penned and written them, people didn't think they didn't communicate well. Uh, it's impossible. Clearly these writings were a long time after the fact. Well, they've now, through archaeological digs, found a postal system that was used back in those days and those times where people would mail, post, letters, as it were, to one another, communicate anciently with one another, proving the accuracy of the Bible. Number five, very quickly, in fact, I'll move on. I could talk about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Very quickly... Hypaticus, one of the greatest minds of the day, 200 years before Christ, looked up and he counted and he said there are 1,022 stars. Then 200 years after Christ, uh, they said, no, no, correction, there's 1,056 stars. Then Galileo created the telescope in 1610 and he fell to his knees. He said there are 100 billion stars. Well, guess what? If you read the Bible, Jeremiah 33, it said that the whole time. It was a time when the world, where people believed the world was flat. The Bible always said that it was round. I move on. Number six, fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> Is this good? I just wanted to give a little bit of an, a little bit of a, an apologetical component to make us again think of the validity and the power of this book. Not so much a warm and fuzzy type message, if you like, but something that you can sink your teeth in and say, you know what, there is something dynamic, there is something supernatural about this book. You better not ignore it. Fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. There are over 18,000, 18,017 to be precise, prophecies in the Bible. Prophecy is pre-written history. Only God knows the future and he knows the future because he foreordained the future. Not that he's looking through a lens at the future. He already knows the future because he's outside of time. And he has recorded in Scripture some of this for us to see. All kinds of prophecies regarding individuals, regarding nations, for example, such as individuals, Abraham, you will have a son. Guess what? He did. 
He spoke of rulers, for instance, Cyrus of Persia, a hundred years before Cyrus was even born. Look that up in Isaiah 45, verse 1. We move on, uh, you know, think about a hundred years before a, a, a guy's ever born, he's already spoken of being the leader in power in a nation. Could you imagine uh, predicting who the, the Prime Minister of Australia is going to be in a hundred years? There might be a lot of them <laughs> by that time, that is. <laughs> Speaks of nations, the fall of the northern kingdom, the length of time that Judea would be in captivity. It speaks of the fall of Babylon. It speaks of the destruction of Tyre. There are, there are, there, again and again, it speaks prophetically before these things ever happen and then it substantiates those truths Church, the Bible is like no other book. What about the prophecies that relate to Jesus? His second coming, let's be ready. But predominantly what we can look at with absolute perfection is the prophecies as it related to his first coming. The Bible says that Jesus, in his coming, that he would come from the seed of Abraham, from the seed of Jesse and David, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be called Emmanuel, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that great persons would come to adorn him, that there would be a slaughter of children in Bethlehem, that he would be preceded by a forerunner, that he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, that he would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren, that he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends, that he would be sold at a potter's field for 30 pieces of silver, that he would be spat upon, that he would be lifted up and nailed to a cross, that he would be forsaken by God. And Psalm 23, uh, 22, where he cried out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It speaks uh, again and again that they would cast lots for his clothing, that he would even intercede for his murderers, that he would not die with a single bone of his body broken, that he would be buried with the rich, that he would be raised from the dead, that he would ascend back to the right hand of the Father. All of this has been recorded for us long before Jesus entered into the world. What are the chances of all of that taking place, all of those prophecies being spoken with incredible clarity, being fulfilled in one person? Scientists have done the numbers. I've got it here, but it's, it, I, 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 I can't pronounce it. But it'll go something like this. I work well with pictures. The state of Victoria, breadth and depth, covered two feet the entire state of Victoria in $1 gold coins. Two feet thick. The whole state. You get in a helicopter. Before you go, one man takes one coin and he marks a red X on it. And he puts it somewhere out there. You get in a helicopter and he's, you say, fly out. And as you're flying above the state of Victoria in our helicopter, you say, drop here. He lands, you reach down, and you pick up that coin with the X mark. What are the chances of that happening? All of this points to the inspiration the infallibility, the authority and the inerrancy of the scriptures. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. 
Amen. Number seven. Oof. The Lord's testimony of the Bible. Every other religion will say that Jesus was the greatest man who ever walked on earth. But we as Christians don't believe he was just the greatest man. We believe he's the, good, the God man. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's Jesus in Matthew 4, quoting Deuteronomy 8. Jesus claimed the inerrancy of the Bible, not just for every word, but for every, every, every jot and every tittle, it says. Luke 16, 7, easy for heaven and earth to pass away than in one stroke of the letter of the Lord to fail. Think about the four stories of the Old Testament that are perhaps mocked the most. What comes to mind? Jonah and the whale? Sodom and Gomorrah? Adam and Eve? Noah's Ark. Four most common stories mocked. Guess what? Jesus spoke of all four stories as it related to his life. He said things like, the second coming will be like the days of Noah. The final judgment will be like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Marriage is to be permanent, like I said it out in the beginning with Adam and Eve. My own resurrection was like Jonah who spent three days, three nights in the belly of the fish and the whale. Again and again and again, Jesus quoted those Old Testament scriptures and said, it's fair income. Number eight. It's a miracle, church. The amazing indestructibility of the Bible. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Kings have banned it. Emperors have forbid it. Philosophers have denounced it. Atheists have assaulted it. Infidels have mocked it, but yet it stands. The French philosopher Voltaire once said, A hundred years from my death, the Bible will simply be a museum piece. Well, guess what? A hundred years later, the French Bible Society set up its headquarters in Voltaire's old home in Paris. <laughs> Hallelujah. Number nine. What about the ethical superiority of the Bible? You pick up this book. There's no moral code or ethic better than, it, than anything else in the world. Honour your father, your mother. Love your wife. Love your children. Forgive your enemies. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Don't cheat. Where other so-called holy books will say, kill the infidel. The Bible speaks of love. And a moral code of hard work, of being true to yourself and being real. Radical equality. I won't go into slavery. We could. Now that's twisted and wrong. The scriptures don't encourage that, as some would suggest. It speaks of good citizenship, social justice, selfless service. Number 10, and I close very quickly, the supernatural power of the Bible. This book saves, it prunes, it comforts, and it guides. It'll be a lamp to your soul. It'll be fire to your bones. It can be a hammer that will break a hardened heart. It's a double-edged sword that will cut deep. It is milk 
that feeds the young, and it's meat that sustains the old, and it's manna, a fresh word, better than a big M, right in season. No other book can tell me who I am, where I've come from, and where I'm going. No other book can tell me how to be right with God. No other book can look beyond the grave and tell me where I'm headed. You can read other books, but this book will read you. Oh, that's not a clap to get me off. (laughs) I'm wrapping it up. The word of God will transform drunkards. It'll purify prostitutes. It'll change thieves and make them content. It'll humble the prideful. The broken are made whole. Those that are weak can be made strong. All because of this book. The Gideons do a great job of spreading and giving out Bibles. You go anywhere in the world, you'll often find the Gideons have done their work getting Bibles out. I remember reading this whilst living in Africa, this paragraph. In the introduction of a Bible, and I've looked at and found it in every Bible in every hotel that I've stayed at since. And it says this. Find it in the Gideon's Bible, front cover. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true. Its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveller's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's comfort, a compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, too, heaven is opened up and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good and its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given, it is given you in life, and it will be opened at the judgment, and it will be remembered forever. Involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labour, and it will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Church, here we hold the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word of the living God. I'd encourage us to spend time personally, and together in this word. This is a value we have as a Bible. I don't know about you, when I came to follow, one of the concerns of my heart was, is it a Bible-teaching, preaching church? I don't want to hear just feel-good stories. I don't want to hear modern pop psychology. I want to know that week after week, day after day, we are opening the Scriptures and we are teaching expository style, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, 
when digging into the scriptures as a Bible. That was a concern for me. Amen? May we not just binge on Netflix. Oh, why is it so easy to do that? And so hard to have some devotional time. There's a war that is going on for our souls. And time is short. I pray that I've stirred and I've evoked something in you to take seriously the Word of God. Let's meditate on it. Let's sing about it. Let's preach it. Let's read it. Let's study it. And let's get around it. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for your word. You've said in Psalms, Blessed is the one that delights in the law of the Lord, and the one that meditates on your law day and night. You've said that person will be like a tree that is planted by the streams of water, which yields fruit in season whose leaf doesn't wither, but whatever they do, it prospers. May we not be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. May we have a fresh appetite, Lord, for your word. Thank you for it. Thank you for the blood of the martyrs that have been shed so that we could have it today. Thank you for speaking to us and giving us your word. Bless, follow church today and every visitor and every person present, every dad here today, Lord, I pray your grace. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.